Hello and welcome to True Crime People and Places, the podcast where we explore the world of true crime from an academic and personal perspective. I'm Linda Sage, a criminal psychologist with over four decades of experience working with some of the most dangerous individuals in the world. This is a fairly new podcast and we are developing the systems and growing our audience. So we appreciate your support and feedback. This podcast may contain discussions of violence, murder, sexual assault and other topics related to true crime. Listener discretion is advised. If you are sensitive to these topics, please be aware that this podcast may be triggering you. If at any time you feel overwhelmed or distressed, please take a break and seek support from a mental health professional or support organisation. Hi, and very warm welcome back to uh, True Crime People and Places. I'm Linda Sage, and today we're going to go back a little bit because uh, sometimes we take for granted what we hear these phrases and words and vocabulary, but I get asked an awful lot about what the meaning of words are. So I thought today uh, in the podcast that we'll actually look at some of the vocabulary that perhaps uh, true crime buffs should know and it'll make it a lot easier to uh, understand the concepts of everything else that uh, goes on. So a lot of the things we talk about are cold cases and in uh, legal speak, a cold case describes a crime that remains unsolved but isn't actively being investigated, maybe due to lack of evidence, maybe uh, all the leads are dried up. So it's uh, a, a term that they use when they pick up something that needs looking into again. And uh, a lot of the older crimes that come back, especially now because they've put evidence on file, so DNA and other uh, techniques, forensic techniques we have now that we didn't have then, they are absolutely able to pick um, pieces of information up and a, a lot of the old crimes get solved by new technology. Uh, another one is a latent print. Now a latent print is a fingerprint that's made of sweat and oil. It comes from a person's own skin rather than blood or something more visible. So to naked eye, normally you won't see them at all, but not like somebody's hand in a, a, a blood splatter or something like this. So it's important. The, the difference is that this one basically isn't visible to the naked eye, but when they go and do their, their dusting, that they can pick, uh, pick these up very often on windows. If somebody looks through a window before they've gone in or things like this. So a latent print is something that is not visible by eye, but they can actually uh, pick it up with powders and chemicals now. Blood splatter. I'll just mention that in the previous one. But it, uh, blood splatter, there are so many different ones. There are all types of blood, uh, blood stains left in a violent crime scene. And it's a hugely important piece of evidence, um, especially in murder cases. There's an entire area of forensics dedicated to studying it. So I'm just doing a very short introduction here to, to sort of generalise. So rather than going into a lot of deep uh, uh, 
information about this. Obviously, blood patterns are analyzing. You get a different type of blood spatter from an artery, than a vein, uh, a different type of uh, blood spatter for a cut or a, a blunt instrument. So these are things that people can determine uh, as the important details of the type of crimes committed. Blood spatter um, analysis does come in to be criticised, but it's one of the ones that have been the most useful in aspects of solving crime. There are uncertainties, because obviously people do react differently, but there's an enormous amount of research and data that now has gone in. It is still subjunctive or looked at uh, by the person who is looking at the scene, but there's a lot of good information supporting the types of spatters and where blood goes if uh, a violent attack has taken place. Particle hemorrhaging, you hear this one quite a lot. Uh, the cause of death isn't always obvious in murder cases. We're not talking about the ones here where there's lots of blood and things like this. We're looking at usually strangulation or even smothering, because uh, looking in the eyes for particular hemorrhaging, there's lots of little tiny dots that appear as a result of bleeding beneath the skin. And particular hemorrhage isn't a sure sign that somebody has been uh, choked to death, but it's likely to appear when the blood vessels in somebody's head have been subjected to severe pressure. A mask of sanity. Now, this one, you you uh, probably not as, as popular, but it's something that uh, came out in um, 1941. Uh, it's not a new phrase, but this is especially uh, adaptable to psychopaths because people that are particularly known for uh, their uh, charm, your uh, deceptive, charming personalities, obviously, uh, uh, Ted Bundy is one that comes to mind. We, all the people that can really easily blend into their situation, Dennis Nielsen, and a lot of the others that people turn around and say, oh, you would never have thought it of them because they can really blend into their surroundings. So it's the phenomena really of psychopaths that easily blend with their uh, society around them because they don't typically suffer with any noticeable um, psychological illnesses or um, symptoms or anything like this. So the mask of sanity. McDonald triad, again, this is one that perhaps isn't one of the most um, famous out there, but this uh, first appeared back in 1963, and it refers to the three behaviours that if exhibited in childhood, may be one of the tendencies towards violence in later life. It is used a lot, but it's not always referred to as its name. So those behaviours are uh, uh, animal, animal cruelty, fire setting, and chronic bedwetting. Uh, so going back into the history of a perpetrator, then it's uh, a basis to actually look at. There's many prominent murderers have checked all of these boxes, they're skeptical using this, but it's there as a, a basis and it's surprising the amount of people that actually do drop into those categories. Rigor mortis, this is one that you hear a lot. And this is, rigor occurs when a body stiffens a few hours after death as a result of calcium buildup in the joints and muscles. This can last a few days, 
Um, and it's one of the clues in crime investigations determined when a murder took place. So this is where they get the timing and the temperature of the body and the environments and something like this. Angel of death is a name given to a professional who intentionally kills their patients. In some cases, the killer has convinced himself they're helping the victim by choosing the end of life, which is what sometimes they call angels of mercy. Obviously, here in the UK, one of our biggest ones was Harold Shipman and also Beverly Allett. So this, these are the type of people that are within a caregiving environment and have access to vulnerable patients. Black Widow, we hear this quite a bit, and these are usually for female murderers. Uh, they only compromise, uh, compose about <coughs> sorry, 15% of killers, um, but it's not unheard of because uh, women who commit murder are sometimes dubbed Black Widows after the spider that devour their own mates after uh, copulating. So the moniker is usually reserved for a woman who targets people close to her, kills for personal gain or uses her femininity to her advantage when committing the crime. You can hear this quite a bit, but again, it's one of the ones, uh, there's actually a couple of criminals here, female criminals known as the Black Widow, but uh, that's just a title. They, I think the press have given them more than the actual link to what uh, their, their crimes were. Luminol, you hear this an awful lot, and it's a, cream, uh, a chemical that emits a blue glow when mixed with certain oxidizing agents. So it picks up uh, like the blood. One of the substances that, that tricks it is the hemoglobin inside the blood. So the oxygen carrying protein found in uh, red blood cells, but um, by spraying the, a violent uh, crime scene with luminol, investigators can detect the blood uh, that aren't visible to the naked eye. It can, it can be on clothing, it can be on all sorts of things, but it will also, again, when we talked earlier about blood splatter, if somebody's cleaned up a scene or they think they have, that you can't see it with the naked eye, by putting a spraying uh, luminol, you can, it actually shows up where the blood splatter has been. Glasgow Smile. I know we have a, a Glasgow kiss as well, which is the headbutt, but the Glasgow smile uh, was really confirmed going back to 1947. The wounds came to symbolise in the case of two cuts connecting ears, the corner of the mouth. So it's when somebody has put perhaps a, a blade in the mouth and it cuts the mouth right round to the uh, um Ears and it was dubbed the Glasgow Smile because of its use amongst the Scottish gangs in the 1920s and 30s. It, it marks uh, appears numerous murder cases since. Also, um, with the the triads, it was one of the particular signs of uh, triad killings as well. Gunshot residue, uh, GSR. It's made up of the propellant particles that are discharged during gunshot. It often settles on clothing of anybody who was within a certain feet of a fired gun, and it can be a central piece of evidence when uh, connecting suspects to crime. It could be in clothes, it can be your hands, it can be on uh, skin. Uh, even if somebody goes and has a shower, then sometimes it can still be there 
and again, very often not visible to the naked eye, but it can be picked up with a forensic um, uh, systems there as well. Right, brain fingerprinting. Now, this one's quite a new one, and you might not have uh, really come across it very much, but it's a way that a suspect is hooked up to uh, like a helmet or a, a cap that senses brain activity, and they're given details about the alleged crime, and the only the perpetrator would know. If they recognise what's being described, the sensor is uh, supposed to pick up the telltale electrical signs in the brain. While uh, research suggests that technology may be reliable than a polygraph test, there still isn't enough studies to verify it. This they use, let's say the polygraph test before will, will seem to be good, but there's ways of manipulating that. And obviously they used to do the electric shock treatment, you know, realigning the brain and things like this. But this one really, is a, it's a way of a support analysis in a way that uh, it, it involuntary movements or, uh, or actions of the brain, like the body language, can give a lot away. So John Doe or Jane Doe, world world known this one, is the name given to victims whose identity is concealed from the public or until they have actually identified um a body so their names are often uh withheld maybe in court cases as well if people are protected and they're going in they will be uh renamed either john or jane doe munchausen syndrome by proxy and when we talked earlier about the angels of death and i mentioned beverly allert you know this is a something where people are prone to manufacture traumas to gain sympathy so, but instead of harming themselves, they choose to harm people uh, around them. People with this condition might intentionally make their children sick or disabled, which sometimes leads to their death. Again, usually, not always, because there's always an exception to the rule, but it is usually somebody that is in a caregiving role uh, and then uh, takes that, that onto somebody else rather than harming themselves. Copycat crime. A copycat crime also occurs when a perpetrator is inspired by a different crime. You do get this quite a lot um, when there's somebody notorious and somebody else thinks uh, that they can do what this person has done. So whether it's depicted in a book, a movie, TV show or film, or it happened in real life, so investigators sometimes have trouble distinguishing between top copycat killings and the acts of a single serial murderer. So it depends if uh, the, per the per first perpetrator has been caught or it is as um, been a, a time, a set amount of time, perhaps you know, they stop killing for an amount of time, uh, their life changed and then they're coming back and they're picking up the same things or somebody else is copying what they have done. Trophies, you hear this an awful lot. So many serial killers uh, and serial rapists, uh, we're really talking about serial crimes here, not a one-off, though one-off sometimes do take trophies, it's, it's not as usual. Many serial killers collect trophies from their victims after committing a crime. Uh, they use these very often to replay the crime in their head, to go through the, those feelings again. 
uh, they can be anything, literally anything. They can be anything from a, a piece of underwear to a piece of jewellery to a, a lock of hair. So footwear, you know, we really do develop into taking a body parts and things like this, as a lot of the the renowned killers have done. So, but uh, usually trophies are more of, the, of a smaller type of thing that they can keep hidden quite easily ballistics this is one again that we hear and it's down to the study of the mechanisms of the firearms so just like fingerprints then um, uh, guns have their unique uh, marks so they can help uh, investigators identify gun death and determine where and how the or what weapon was used in the crime and possibly who pulled the trigger Though in the past few years, the availability of ballistics to uh, provide definite answers has been called into question, but it's more likely statements. You know, again, they can do uh, with lasers, they can do the trajectory of the bullet, you know, where the shooter was at the time of the, um, the, the shooting and things like this. So it's a lot of support for the investigators. Forensic entomology is, again, one that is used for the career of somebody who studies bugs. And a forensic entomologist, these are scientists that look into insect interaction within crime scenes, because especially if bodies have been left in uh, outside places or shallow graves or uh, things like this, it's obviously the bug and animal uh, infectations that happen. So the scientist looks at um, what sort of bugs are hanging around and the stage of development. So you hear a lot of the times that, uh, that uh, a certain uh, scientist is, is working with this. Again, to determine, especially these are longer um, uh, cases in time-wise. You know, they, they have been sort of interred or left for a while. And so this actually helps them to know how long that uh, a body has been there. So Lockhart's exchange profile. Now, probably this is one that, uh, unless you're really into your uh, uh, vocabulary, might not have come up. But it has um, a, a place because the 20th century forensic psychologist, Dr. Edmund Lockhart, came up with this idea observing that criminals will almost always bring something to a crime scene with them and leave something behind. So providing valuable evidence for investigators. So again, it's about weighing up. You might have heard the about this, what was at the crime scene, what has been brought to the crime scene, what has been taken away, or what has been left, um, but perhaps never heard about where it actually came from. So these are 20 uh, vocabularies that you hear an awful lot within crime, uh, true crime investigations uh, or even novels and things like this, but they're based on true crime knowledge. So it's important perhaps to... Uh, sometimes take a little bit of this step back and uh, revisit and recalibre the, the, the things that we, we think we know or understand or take for granted even. So thank you for joining me again today. We will be back next time with another insight into true crime, people and places. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to True Crime, People and Places. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. And if you have any suggestions for future topics, please let us know. See you next time.